0: This is the Breakfast Leadership Podcast. Boundaries or burnout, you make the choice. Here's your host, Michael Levitt. Welcome to the Breakfast Leadership Podcast. I've been looking forward to this day for a long time, uh, because I get to speak with Ron Carucci. Uh, Ron has an incredible career. If you're not familiar with him, you must be living under a rock, because I've known about him for a long time. He's a best-selling author of eight books, contributes to Harvard Business Review and Forbes. Uh, He consults with all types of organizations, Fortune 50, uh, and he's also launched his own organization. So, Ron, welcome to the show. Michael, great to be with you. Thanks so much. Likewise, likewise. So it's part of, you know, one of the things that I do whenever I have a guest on is I always go and pick up one of their books. Uh, You have eight, uh, but I didn't have to go far to the bookstore because I had one in my bookshelf already from 2006 called Leadership Divided. I I, I refer to this uh, for the, the millennial guests. Uh, that are listening to the show, This is prehistoric or pre-iPhone, because the iPhone came out in two thousand and seven and and this book came out a little bit before. But in rereading it over the last few days, I was amazed um, on how, you know, current, this book is, even though it's, you know, it's been, you know, on the shelves for, for some time. So I want to talk to a little bit about that and I, and then we can lead into, you know, the the future work and, you know, the 10 year study you've done and everything you're doing today. But I guess the first question out of the gate is thinking back to that book um, and looking at things now, have you seen a lot of dramatic changes in the leadership space or, are we still fumbling around like we did, like Elliot and everybody else that you'd refer to in the book? <laughs> you know, Michael, it's a great question.
1: Um, it's a book I, I wish I had written seven, six to seven years later. But it,
0: it,
1: it was at the time millennials were just rising up on the scene, and we didn't even we didn't have that word millennials yet. And I I didn't set out to write a book on cross generational leadership and cross generational relationships. That's just where the publisher, you know, when the research all came back from that book, it was too broad and they wanted me to narrow it. And I had said that one of the things that surprised me in that data was that there were this interesting rift, these interesting little friction points across generations. And they said, great, write about that. And I, I, at the time I was a novice. I, I mean, I, underst- I was teaching at, a, at the graduate school level. So I was, around, I was surrounded by what were then the emerging millennials. And I had an appreciation for how they were different and how they were not different. And at the time, what was frustrating to me was that the, the language the world was using was all demographic language. It was about your birth year or your, 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 a number to describe these differences. And all that did was further divide us, right? When the reality is that it, it was not an issue of demographics. It was an issue of relationship. We, we, we didn't know how to talk to each other. And so over the years following the book, I actually, that's when I actually learned about millennials and, and fell in love with them as a generation and fell in love with their uniqueness and also where they're not unique, because the reality is that we're more alike than we're not. And we're better together. Uh, and we, there's a far more complementarity between us than not. I think we still have struggled with that. I still think what to do with millennials is still a, a question mostly from marketers. Um, because they are very different kinds of consumers and use their money very differently than the, their predecessor generation. I think now you're already seeing those millennials starting to arrive in leadership roles that are very seasoned. Probably some, in some cases beyond what they're ready for. And the reality is now everybody's talking about Gen Z and the, the ones up behind the millennials and how very different they are. And so I think that the reality is we're going to keep looking at generation after generation as if they're that some, some new alien arrived on the planet. And we're going to keep treating them that way, whether it's true or not. There are certainly fundamental differences and distinctions between them. But I remember writing an article, I don't know, maybe, maybe seven or eight years later after the book, and it opened up with entitled, uh, self-interested, don't want to work hard, uh, overly social, you know, feedback, whatever, and all these words. And I and I said, these sound like words that people use to describe millennials, don't they? But they actually were words that opened up a 1969 Life magazine article about boomers. So the fact that we're using the same language to describe the frustrations with an emerging generation 25 years ago or 35 years ago says that, or 40 years ago, actually, that just says that we're predisposed to look at emerging leaders through a lens of, you know, some alienated life form, rather than to appreciate what distinctions might be there, what distinctions we put there. I mean, you know, millennials, are, are the. we told them as we raised them, we, we said, you are the generation that will change the world. Well, it turns out they believed us, right? Now we have to get out of their way. Now we're, now we're, now we're telling them, sit down and shut up, wait your turn. And they're frustrated by that. Well, we, we built them to be change agents. We told them to be. Uh, n- now, now we have to do our part to help them become what we told them they'd be. So I think we're still wrestling with it. I think we're still grappling with language in a very clumsy, awkward way. Um, I think we are raising, I think all in all, we're, raising, we're doing a better job raising up leaders
0: now than we were 20 years ago. That's good to know. And, and I've worked with both Baby Boomers and Millennials um, Generation X for those that don't know what group I fall in. And the similarities between those two groups are stronger than anyone realizes and i like you i am a huge cheerleader of what millennials can and will do you know they're questioning things they're questioning the silos and the structures of organizations and the hierarchy and 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 things and going well why is it this way why can't it be this way and you hit it right on the head we have been you know you sit down, wait your turn. It's our turn now. When, when we're ready to retire, then you can take it. And thankfully, now with organizations and the ever changing world we're seeing, more and more of these individuals are again going into leadership roles. And, and you, you hit it at it in your book and in and, and other things that you've written, is oftentimes when leaders become leaders, they're not prepared um, they, there's only so much training that they will get at the office. It's pretty much, here you go, figure it out, uh, go to it and, and figure out a way to you know, survive. And uh, it's, it's a rough position to put somebody in, but it's kind of how things have been. So, uh, talk about you know, the follow-up of the book, and you had mentioned uh, before we went on, you know, the 10-year study that you did and, and all the things that you've learned after that and, you know, and update us on what's going on with that. Sure. Well, one of the things that began to happen quickly was
1: uh, as millennials sort of accelerated their upward climb and began to take on roles in middle and then senior leadership, or, you know, or either in startups or in organizations where they were finding their career paths accelerated, they began to stumble, they began to show up unprepared. And um, it became personal for us when we were working on a large transformational project for a client of ours where a younger leader had certainly set himself apart and done great work, was seen by everybody as high potential and seen as a great future asset. And so when he was given a chance to run a new part of the organization, um, nobody was surprised. And yet nine months later, he was fired. And so that was devastating to us to see CEO of that company was more than inferring that some of the responsibility was ours. And so I wanted to go investigate to find out what happened. And turns out he was just another statistic. turns out that more than half of those that were arriving in senior level roles were failing within 18 months of their job. That's been going on for 20 years. And we've known that, you know, uh, the recruiters love it because it's an annuity, but for everybody else, it was a lot of carnage and a lot of waste. And so uh, we wanted to find out what happened. And so we you know, began to go dig around and that led to a 10-year longitudinal study of more than 2,700 liters to find out what on earth could be possibly, what landmines could be ending up in their way, on their way up, that could be causing so many to derail. Um, why, are we, why have we been so accepting of the statistic that more than ha- half or more of them are stumbling? How could you go from being a high potential, wonderfully gifted super future star kind of leader to a disaster in just a year that made no sense and turns out that you know with all the landmines we discovered that organizations are actually putting in their way it's a wonder any of them make it but the other the other good news was that we were able to isolate data. well if half are actually succeeding if half of them are actually sticking the landing and thriving what are they doing that it's setting themselves that it, that's setting them apart from the others and we were able to isolate patterns in both sides of that data set. And it was very exciting to find.
0: Mm. Yeah. It's, you know, I, this would be, what, how about 21 years ago I used to work for executive search firm Russell Reynolds. And I remember seeing executives come in for placements at, you know, fortune 50 organizations. And then a year or two later I'd walk through the reception area and I would see them again. And it confused me because I'm like, wait a minute, weren't they just here? Because I would know who they were because I would recognize them and just, you know, with uh, the regular day-to-day business. And it always alarmed me. It's like, why are they back? You know, is it a better opportunity? Because at that particular time was the dot-com era. And I know in IT, uh, the job market was so crazy where a recruiter would place you and then call you six months later and say, are you really, really happy with that job? Because I'll place you somewhere else. It was just absolute insanity back then. One thing I wonder about, you know, those 50% that failed in your research and all of that, I'm guessing that in those experiences, it was extremely stressful and potentially, you know, a lot of those people burned out, which after they leave a position and in, quote unquote, a failure type of situation that can be really, really impactful on how they approach the next position, and it may carry over down the road. What was your experience in in talking with some of those individuals on what their stress levels were like and how burned out were they?
1: You you know what's interesting, Michael, that that, uh, burnout and stress was one of the least causes of of stumbling. Really? It it, It was more fundamental and more stupid than that. So here's an example. What one of them, we call this a failure context or you know, the myth of the, of the mandate. So when we hire people into leadership roles, whether they're, you know, they're on their way up or they're on their way in from outside, we say to them during the, their interview, uh, using one of what we now, we've known for a long time as the least reliable devices with which to select somebody for a leadership role, the resume, um, and we say things like, oh my, look at, you've built two supply chain overhauls in your career. That's what we need. Or we say, oh, wow, look at these great apps you've built. We need that. Or, my gosh, what a track record you have with sales forces, building great sales forces or great brands. That's exactly what we're looking for here. And in that, in that part of the conversation, we don't realize we are sowing the seeds of failure for them. Why? What we're saying to them is, you have a formula. You have a recipe. We want you to come here and repeat your past successes. Well, what have you just given them permission to do? Ignore context, come in, and now there's this mythical mandate they have to repeat their past success in your, you know, with your obviously incompetent, you know, dumb people. Because if they could have done it, they would have. So what happens? That leader enters the role, starts turning over rocks, starts taking out, re- reaching back for their recipe instead of reaching back for their wisdom, uh, and starts slapping it onto the organization as if it's going to work. Well, when it starts, when it's when it doesn't stick, they slap harder. Then they get frustrated. Then when they get really frustrated, they start saying things like, oh, my God, gosh, you didn't tell me it was this bad. Or how have you people made money? Or how long have you lived with it like this? And now their diagnosis becomes an indictment and people start backing away from them. And eventually they die a slow death. So we've all seen that movie countless times. But what we don't realize we're doing is that we're setting them up to fail. Rather than teaching them to to read context, to read the environment, to recognize that the environment has as much to change in them as they have to change in it, Um, we just say, you you get to come in here and impose your change on us because you're the hero. So that's just one of many, many examples we found that set leaders up to stumble um, with the best of intentions.
0: Yeah, that's that's amazing. And you know, I worked for uh, three different clinics that were very similar as far as the type of uh, primary care health clinic. Uh, And the thing of it is that I think made me successful at all three of them is I went into there saying, "Okay, yes, I know how to do things, but I'm going into this as a novice, as a student. I've got wisdom, so I can analyze what." is happening, but I can't apply this particular band-aid or this type of treatment across the board because it wouldn't work. So that, I mean, that's, it's, as you said, you know, we set up many of our leaders for failure, expecting them to, okay, you worked as the CEO of this particular restaurant chain. Now you moved over to a different restaurant chain, which is Completely different. Supply chain's different. Franchisees are treated differently. All of this thing. And they think, well, I can just do it. Well, a cookie cutter approach for leadership is a prescription for disaster. It absolutely
1: is. And we don't tell people that we don't say, you know. so we'll have executives say things like, I'm just going to spend the first 90 days learning and listening. I'm gonna do a listening tour. I'm gonna gather information. I'm not gonna do anything disruptive until I really learn the environment. So they come in with good intentions. Two weeks in the CEO is saying, where's your 90 day plan? And out the window goes learning. And suddenly we see task forces spawning and consultants are coming in and we whipping people up into a frenzy to sort of signal that I'm here, new sheriff in town, change is coming um and it's very unfortunate because um if you don't i mean sure your past successes probably offer you some insights and some wisdom that might apply here but if that wisdom and that insight is not contextualized to this environment if it is not particularized to the challenges at hand and your leadership your personal behavior your motivations your own biases are not adapted to the environment um you're going to have organ rejection very quickly Um, And I think most people aren't telling leaders that part.
0: Yeah. And that's, and that's something that we've seen and we continue to see. And, you know, the smart organizations, you know, realize that they need to give their new leadership space and there's a reason why they have new leadership and hopefully, you know, the, the, powers that be recognize that, okay, we're bringing in a new CEO, the last CEO left for whatever reasons they left. Um, it's an opportunity uh, to go in the direction where we want the organization to go. We have to give that individual the time and the, the ability to do what they need to do and not just apply, here's the recipe off the shelf. It's, like, it's going to take some different things and different, different patterns to uh, make that organization successful and grow. So tell me a little bit about your new, well, I shouldn't say new, it's not new organization, but the work that you're doing uh, today. So at Navilant, uh so I'm two, I, I founded Navalent with two friends of mine, we're three
1: equal owners, about 14 years ago. Okay, not so new. It's, uh, I can't believe, I mean, we still feel like a startup in many ways, but, but we're not new at it. We were all working together at a very large organizational firm in New York City and uh, loved our work, loved our craft, loved the work we got to do with clients. But that firm had been sold to a much larger firm. And so our work as partners no longer became about the craft. It became about feeding the dinosaur. Uh And that became less fun. And we thought, gosh, we can still have this dream. We can still do work we love with people we love uh, and do good work for clients we enjoy. And so we, we said, let's go do this on our own. I don't think we said, let's go build a firm we said, let's go do this work we love. Um, as it turns out, to do the work we love, that meant you need, need more, more people for the Army to go in and be able to affect lo- larger transformational results. So we hired some folks, and over the years, they have ebbed and flowed in size, but you know, we now have you know, managing partners and partners and senior consultants, and we have some staff folks, and it's, it's a great little boutique firm. And um, we love what we do, and we get to do it in, a, in new ways every day, uh, it, 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 for different clients every day. I think you know we're not we're no um, exception to disruption. You know the world around us has gone digital. The world around us. You know when we began our careers, at least the, those of us who own the firm, organizational consulting and leadership work were not were sort of anomalies. It was a side dish. It wasn't really a mainstream offering in the consulting world. And now, in the last decade, especially the last five years, the hundreds of thousands of practitioners that have Enter the field as coaches or executive coaches, or organization design experts, or um, you know, other other various facets of the org behavior world uh, is just profound. Um, and so now, to the emerging make-a-consumer who's never bought services of this kind before, now you know has a plethora to choose from of, we're, of which we're just one. And so, learning how to redistinguish ourselves, learning how to reassert our own voice learning how to set ourselves apart as practitioners from the many, many, many others out there doing this. Is, is That's a new muscle for us. We're having to learn. We've never had to do that
0: before in a way we do now. So we're growing up all over again. But you know, the thing of it is, though, I think with your firm, um, and I, I see this with a lot of the organizations, the things that make the great firms and the great people different boils down to customer service, and the experience that you have uh, and the approachability. I mean, you you left a big firm and you decided to, let's launch this thing because we still wanna be able to do the things we like to do and work with the clients we wanna work with. And you had the, uh, I don't wanna call it misfortune, but then you realized, wait a minute, this thing's gonna have to grow into a firm because we wanna make a bigger impact. And it did, and it's grown organically, and you've done it in such a way that you can still control the size of the organization, what you want to do, who you want to work with. And I always tell people, whenever they ask me the definition of freedom, yes, having millions and millions of dollars, and you can sit on the beach all day and night, if that's what you want to do, that's awesome. But for me, freedom is to be able to work with who I want, where I want, and when I want. That brings me joy and it brings me the ability to create the impact that I want to create. And your firm is doing the same thing.
1: Well, it's, it, and, and that's a very kind of you to say, Michael, I think we, we do refer to ourselves as, as a lifestyle firm. We do refer to ourselves as, you know, we love each other and we love the work and that we, we believe that changes the work. And, and so we are, you know, we are trying to be more choiceful. We're, we're not for everybody and not every client is for us. And so we're trying to get more thoughtful about, you know, how we select our clients. We're trying to be more intelligent about how we let the clients we want to find us, find us. Um, but it's all a new muscle. It's all a new, uh, a new world for us. Um, but I, I agree with you that ultimately at the end of the day, client experience and, the, and because of what, the work we do is intimate, the work we do is very high risk for senior leaders to tr- entrust us with their kingdom, to entrust us with their, the future of their organizations and their kingdoms. And so if you can't establish the right level of connection and attachment and form a very deep relationship with them, um, and they wanting that with you, it's probably not a good match. I think there are many folks out there doing this work who come in as experts. They're the answer ATM. You know, they come in with ans- you know, a predetermined set of answers to questions that they think you should be asking, whether you're asking them or not.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and that's, that's an approach. It's, people, people see it as efficient. People see it as, you know, and people th- who, there are people who don't, who don't want to think. They, wanna, they want someone to ha- come in with an answer and just put, put it in. And so, you know, for, for them, we're probably the wrong solution. But for those who really want thought partnership, you know, that who want thought partners, who want to build capability for the organizations, who want to, to not only for themselves be the unit of analysis, but have the organizations be the unit of analysis. You know, I think that it depends, but I think we're learning how to find and isolate those leaders that are probably a good
0: match for us, but it's a new it's a new game. It's a new game for everybody and I think, you know, firms like yours help leaders actually get to that transformational change. Um, the other ones you mentioned, you know, the, the ATM approach, ATMs are just kicking out band-aids and quite frankly, in my experience, it never really addresses or gets to the root causes of why an organization or an executive is dealing with the issues that they're dealing with. and. Uh, going in and actually let's take a look and peel back all the layers and see what's going on uh, is ultimately what organizations need. And the smart ones realize that. And uh, it's good for you to, to have this firm and be able to offer these services to the clients that desperately need it. If you were going to, we're almost wrapping up here. If you were going to talk to a new executive that just became the CEO of, you know, Insert name of organization, and you wanted to give them one bit of advice on how they could really be successful in the role. I know this is kind of a vague question, but what's something that resonates deep within you that when you're working with all of these CEOs and organizations, what's the commonality thing if if you thought if more people had this, then it may not put you out of business, but it would definitely lessen the load that you have to go in when you're going into an organization to help them out?
1: Well, I, I can answer that question. I can't answer it in one thing, but I can answer it in one thing with four parts. Okay. Um, and it's the same patterns that, I, that set themselves apart in our research um, over and over again, and no matter how we cut the data. These were the four capabilities that set those 50% apart that stuck the landing. Um, we were very excited when this research was named, uh, you know, uh, one of the year's of idea that ideas that mattered most by Harvard um we we hit a nerve and we didn't really quite know we were going to hit a nerve anyway but there were four what the first was context right so not surprisingly the ability to be curious and read the environment around you the curious to understand uh, industry patterns organizational patterns cultural patterns and to adapt yourself accordingly to recognize that you know you have as much to be changed within you as you have to affect change in in the world around you Um, the second was Breadth. So these are the leaders that recognize that organizations are naturally fragmented. The pieces often don't fit together. There are often rivalries and borders. And these leaders could build bridges. These leaders know how to coalesce an organization into a whole. They recognize that they've gone from playing first chair to being conductor. And now they had to harmonize the entire organization into a more cohesive whole. And they could build bridges. They could create connections. They could create common ground in places where there was not that and so they they knew how all the pieces fit together into performance they didn't see the world if they came up through marketing they didn't see the world through brands anymore If they came up through finance they didn't see the world through economics anymore now they saw you know a go to market capability they saw innovation capability they saw muscles that transcended borders and they could make those muscles stronger the third was choice. So these are the leaders that had to make the hard calls. So many leaders get to the top and decide that their, their job, they, they can purchase loyalty or purchase popularity by saying yes too often. And, they do, and in so doing, they dilute the focus of their organization. They dilute the, the, the organization's ability to focus and narrow their priorities to the few that will help them win. But too many leaders often uh, dole out yeses. And they're afraid to say no and disappoint people. But these leaders were able to understand that leadership is the ability to disappoint people at a rate they can absorb. And they weren't afraid to say no in order to, have, to, even, to even great ideas so that the greater ideas they'd already said yes to could prevail. And the last, not surprisingly, was connection. These leaders had phenomenal relationships with people above them, peers, and also direct reports. They were the ones that were trusted, seen as credible, the ones that, you know, we, we've all seen them in organizations, are the ones everybody wants to work for. And the, the key distinction in how they built their relationships and their internal networks was that they prioritized relationships based on who they could help, based on the ones they could make successful, not based on what they could get from people, but what they could give people. And so they, they set out to put other people's priorities and other people's development on their agendas. So context, breadth, choice, connection, therefore, muscles that we can all learn. There are four muscles that anybody who wants to have influence should have. Um, you probably shouldn't wait till you get your first vice president assignment to start learning them, but they can be learned and they are definitely what set a great executives apart in our data.
0: That's a great, great list. And you know, one saying that I use is saying no makes your yeses stronger. And I, th- I, and I think that's that's a key takeaway from that. So, Ron, I appreciate your time today. I really appreciate the, all of this goal that you've given our audience. And uh, I want to give the floor to you to you know, let people know where they can find you and connect with you and anything else you'd like to say to the audience before we go. Well, thanks so
1: much for having me, Michael. It's been a great chance to chat. I do hope we can keep the conversation going with your audience. Please come visit us at www.navalent.com. Um, if you're a future leader, if you're somebody who's aspiring to uh, the next level of leadership and you want to invest in your own development. We're starting a brand new executive new executive cohort for future uh, or newly minted executives um, It's a one-year cohort experience with a very intimate group of people a small number of eight or ten people uh, Where you'll get a deep investment from Nabilan for a year? Um, you'll get 360s. You'll get a couple of great offsites. You'll get um, monthly uh, video conferences and work groups, a really great community of future leaders where you have, you have a safe space to explore your own development. So, come to navelin.com slash rising together if you want to learn more about that. We have a free ebook on leading transformation in organizations. It's our playbook on how we lead change and that's at navelin.com slash transformation. Also at Twitter on Twitter at, at Ron Carucci, I'm also on LinkedIn, so I love to
0: keep the conversation going. Stay in touch. That's awesome. And, and audience, I will definitely have all of those links in the show notes. And I highly encourage you to take advantage of what Ron offers because uh, his, his leadership is gold and he's truly passionate about strong leadership because with strong leadership, you have strong companies and with strong companies, you make a huge impact on everything that we do in our daily lives. So once again, Ron, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Michael, a pleasure is mine. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much. And until next time, everybody be well. Hey, it's Michael again. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate it. If you're like many people, you're dealing with some significant stress and possibly approaching burnout. I know how you feel. In 2009, my burnout led to a year of worst case scenarios. I do not want that to happen to you. If you go to breakfastleadership.com, you can register for a free webinar on burnout prevention, as well as get us a free checklist to have successful mornings. Start off each day the right way. Again, that's at breakfastleadership.com. Also, since you are a loyal podcast listener, I'm asking you to like, rate, and review my podcast on iTunes. I look at all the reviews and appreciate your comments, and it helps other potential listeners discover the content I have on the show. I appreciate you, and thanks again for listening.